ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And it is our first new episode of 2020! Hooray! Hooray! We are back talking more classic cinema, nerdery, John Garfield probably, because that's my things. We are kicking things off with our top three favorite classic film discoveries of 2019 going back to the year before to look at the classic films that got us through the year i've mentioned this on the patreon but 2019 was terrible for me a lot of issues both personal and professional that i was just not down for so i am glad to only just be talking about the classic films that made me happy while putting the rest of 2019 into the garbage how was everybody else's holiday in 2019 in general. I had a good holiday. I work for the Golden Globes each year. What that also means, they were really early this year, January 5th. So we essentially had two days off for Christmas, worked all through New Year's and New Year's Eve, and then worked every weekend. So I was in the same small room for weeks and weeks getting that ready. It was kind of a surreal holiday, but it was still positive. I work with a great team. 2019, it's funny. The older you get, the more you're like, oh, the world is comprised of things big and small, and some are terrible and some are wonderful. In general, I will say I had a decent 2019, largely because I like to not include all the terrible world stuff in my personal wrap-up, because I can't do anything about terrible world stuff other than what I'm doing. You could also not prepare for Joaquin Phoenix winning Best Actor at the Golden Globes. I did prepare. I assumed that would happen. Bless his awkward, awkward self. No comment. (laughs) Sam, what about you? I have to give major props to Drea because the Golden Globes have been so talked about this year compared to last year's. I'm letting her take credit for how awesome the moments that people are talking about were. You are very kind, and I will say I don't deserve any of that credit, but I will pass it along. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. And that's just from the outside looking in. I'm not as close to LA as you guys are. That's part of why my 2019 was really great. I was making a lot of little baby steps in the world of classic cinema, which I'm really happy about. I got my first paid gig talking about cooking with the stars. I gave not my first interview, but my first two interviews, one with Eddie Muller and one with Francesca Bauer, who is the daughter of the first person to win back-to-back acting Oscars, Louise Reiner. So that was really special. I was so honored that she was willing to sit down and talk with me. As I was mentioning just before the episode started, this was my first year using Letterboxd, which everybody begged me to do it for years. And I was like, no, what's the point? And now that we're doing an episode like this, I totally see the point. It's so easy to look back on 2019 and remember all of the movies that I've seen, how I felt about them at the time. 
It's easy to jump in with my favorites. I would not have been able to remember any of these if it weren't for Letterboxd. As a whole, my 2019 was pretty great. And I have to throw in a Kristen moment. I would not have been able to meet Monica Henried without her. And that is one of my best moments <laughs> in 2019. So, And meeting Dave Carger. He would never have come up to me if it weren't for you at the film festival after party. So I just Aww. want to throw that out there too. <laughs> I feel like a proud mama, although it just proves that my undeniable ability to literally jump in front of people and say, hey, stop and talk to me, actually works. <laughs> and you had Eddie give me a shout out. Just meeting Kristen for the first time was really cool. I wish Dre could have jumped in, but next year, next year, we'll figure it out. Yes, next year, April. I won't have my days mixed up. We will make sure that Drea has it on all the sticky notes, all the day planners to come meet us during TCM in April. Well, I'm getting there like a week early this year so we can do some sightseeing. So if you miss me, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Even better before all the hoopla starts out. Exactly. We're seeing all the cemeteries. It's going to be pretty crazy. Well, that'll be fun. But let's move on to our top three lists, our 2019 classic film discoveries. I don't know what everybody's criteria was. I actually went back to my letterbox and was looking at the movies. I do my list a bit differently for my blog, at least. I do anything 1980 and below, because by this point, 1980 is pretty far for me. I don't want to date anybody. That's my criteria, is that anything that was 1980 or below was fair game. Really, I'm just picking things that I think have really connected with me. I have honorable mentions, which is great. But the three films that I did end up going for are very me in the best sense of the word. I don't know. What was everybody else's criteria for this list in general? I was trying to think of what were the standouts for me. And it's interesting because I'm not on Letterboxd. How I keep track of things I like to put in my calendar when I've watched films if they're contemporary films and obviously they're in there because I'm going to the theater but even things that I've watched on my own so then I go back through my calendar and look at it that way and some people keep these running lists where they write down every single thing that they've seen in it year my friend David Anson who was the Newsweek critic for years has lists of every movie he's seen every year going back decades, which I find such a fun way to remember how things are going. Mine was via my calendar. The ones that I picked were ones that either they were bigger films that it was that kind of, I can't believe I didn't see this until now, or they were films that really stuck with me and that I kept finding myself wanting to talk to people about. It was fairly easy because it was easy to just go through everything that I saw for the first time this year and rank them in terms of how I appreciated them. But a huge thing that determined whether or not something would make my list, I discovered a lot of really big classic movies this year. Ones that other people are like, how have you not seen this already? I saw it and I enjoyed it. It has at least gotten an honorable mention because there are a lot of duds that I tried for the first time this year, too. So I think it was pretty easy. I'll go first. I have, again, a very me list. This is not in any particular order, just in terms of like, I'm going to say what I would consider the best for last. My number three, which is from 1938. It is the Mad Miss Manton. I found a bloodstain. 
But it's blue. Hello? Hello, operator? 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 Hello? Hello, operator? <coughs> Your beautiful hips in murder. You're fooling around with someone who isn't afraid to kill. Who is he? What are you girls up to? Wouldn't you and Brent love to know? I had never seen this before. And I love Barbara Stanwyck. But I also really love the period of film that Barbara Stanwyck made between 1938 and 1944-ish. She was at her most beautiful in those movies before she got that poodle cut and the 1950s just ruined her. The Madness Manton is a really great example of her comedic timing. She plays a character that could only exist in a 1938 movie. She plays a daffy society woman who is known for just giving charity balls and doing these epic, elaborate costume parties. And she has this girl squad, this 1938 equivalent of a girl squad that follows her around everywhere. They all have different little personalities. It's like hustlers. If it was less about stripping and more about, you know, martinis and stuff, she ends up stumbling onto this murder. Of course, no one believes her because the cops are guys and they're like, you are just a daffy woman who doesn't know that you found a dead body. The body disappears at a certain point. It's been a while since I've seen it. She plays this just straightforward woman with this glamour and cool and great comedic timing. And she's got her gang of heiresses that are just as funny as she is. One of them starts eating at a crime scene, like the food that's in the fridge where the body's been. It's really funny. Meeting her line for line is Henry Fonda, who plays the reporter that's writing these yellow stories about her being this stitz who just is known for parties. And he falls for her in the most Henry Fonda hangdog way. He's just like, I think you're amazing. I think you're beautiful. You're so perfect. He is just the sycophantic, charming thing. But he's also really funny, too. At a certain point, they say that they left a body on his couch in his office. And the way he delivers the line, what are you trying to do, haunt my couch, is hilarious because he is just about ready to scream. It is a brilliant comic film. If you love murder mysteries, you should go watch it because it's delightful and perfect. I feel like I know that this won't be your theme, but what I want to be a theme is, you said a phrase, a pack of heiresses. And I was like, yes! Packs of heiresses for everyone! Everybody should have a group of heiresses following them around and just getting stuff done, with or without financial compensation. This has been on my list. I wanted to watch it so badly during Summer Under the Stars. I just want to say, you've sold it. If it hadn't already been sold, the next time it's on TCM, I'm definitely watching it. Sam, what is your number three? So I'm going to bring down the mood a little bit. <laughs> My number three choice is Cry Havoc. Grace Lambert, burlesque. <gasps> burlesque? What did you do in burlesque? Well, you know what you do to a banana before you eat it? Well, I do that to music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I can't talk to you anymore. I'll see you tonight if nothing happens. Goodbye, darling. What? Nothing short of death can keep me away. 
Honestly, when it comes to how women involved in the war effort are portrayed, my favorite has always been Keep Your Powder Dry. But this movie definitely blew that out of the water as far as female-driven war pictures go. Joan Blondell and Margaret Sullivan especially give very, very strong, extraordinary performances. This is such a heart-wrenching movie. I honestly, in recent memory, could not recall something so depressing. And the fact that if you're watching so many of the big movies made during World War II, about World War II, you wouldn't even think that women's involvement in the war effort was very significant. But this movie just shows that and turns it completely on its head. One of the really neat surprises for me, this isn't something that everyone would consider a standout as part of this movie, I really loved seeing Diana Lewis in it, who I knew more as William Powell's longtime wife. And this was the first time that I had ever seen her act in a movie or seen her on screen at all. I actually found her character to be the one that I identified with the most. And she was my anchor through the whole film. If she was having a bad time, I probably would have been having a bad time in their barracks. I thought it was such a fascinating movie. I was amazed that it could have been made so long ago. It just felt so modern and relevant. And the ending just ripped my heart out. I don't know if you guys have seen this one, but as far as female films, it's one of the best in classic movies. I was so amazed. I have it on my list, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it either, and your pitch just sold me. Obviously, anything that ends with one of the best female films is really a Drea Clark bait right there. Oh, and I forgot to mention, too, I mean, just the cast as a whole should sell you. Joan Blondell and Margaret Sullivan and Diana Lewis, like I said, but also Marsha Hunt. I will watch anything she's in. So she sold me in the first place, and the powerful performances and plot just followed through for sure. Marsha Hunt, I will say my friend Roger directed a documentary on her called Marsha Hunt's Sweet Adversity, which just came out a few years ago. I've seen it. It's amazing. He's lovely. And all of his stories about her, she's remained so lovely to him to share that. Of course, you've already seen it. I'm going to move my pick up in my rankings. As you know, I'm not good at ranking things. I like them all on a lateral line. I don't like to compare films. I'll just move this one around because it's the perfect companion to Kristen's whose choice made me laugh because mine is another film from 1938 starring Ms. Barbara Stanwyck, Ball of Fire. Great educators throughout the world have been forced to streamline our dictionaries and encyclopedias because of the demands of modern slang. Selected to perform this Herculean task of rewriting these ponderous volumes of knowledge is Professor Bertram Potts who knows nothing about the subject of slang. This is research, isn't it? Yes. Certainly. Who is that guy learned so much from watching an apple drop? Isaac Newton, the law of gravity. Yeah, that's him. And I want you to look at me as another apple, Professor Potts. Just another apple. This was obviously a discovery for me this year. Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper. It's directed by Howard Hawks. Lots of big, intriguing names that you'd think would have brought me in before. Yet somehow this is the first time I saw it. So it's this 
house that's this group of professors, male professors. And my first thought when I was watching this was, oh, this has a lot of Big Bang Theory weird energy to it. And then as I read afterwards, I was like, oh, the Snow White comparisons are very real because hijinks happen. Also, Barbara Stanwyck's character is named Sugar Puss, which I personally believe she should have been called in every film that she was ever in, is obviously a nightclub singer. The professors are all together because they're trying to create an academic guide to slang, and that's how she gets in their orbit, and through one hijink or another, she ends up hiding out in their house, teaching them to live, again, very Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs style. And apparently the professors are all modeled after the archetypes of the Seven Dwarfs. I'd need to rewatch it with that in mind to see. So clearly there's a lot of non-reality based, that beautiful, oh, you're just going to go with this conceit or you're not. And I just went with it and found it adorable and has that screwball you know gary cooper and barbara stanwick are meant to be together and you get to watch them have different prickliness and then rapport and go through all of the stages of that and it's all very satisfying and energetic there's also a very crazy action moment in it they all take off and there's a car crash just shenanigans it's just an enjoyable escapist, ridiculous love story, which I love. I still have to see this. I feel terrible that I haven't, but I think it might be because I don't really like Gary Cooper. Maybe I'm just denying myself a really good movie, so I'm going to get to it. That's my goal in 2020. I'm on the same boat as Kristen. I'm not a Gary Cooper fan, but I watched this on Filmstruck, actually, while it was still a thing. I had heard such good things about it. Barbara Stanwyck is truly the gem of the film. It's almost like her and the Seven Dwarves, her and all the professors. It's really neat. It's a neat play on it. She is the sun to which they all orbit, which makes it all the better. Gary Cooper I find appealing, but never top of my list. Side note on Fall of Fires, the composer who did the film score is Alfred Newman, who did tons. He did How Green Was My Valley, a film you know I will resent forever because of best picture details that I can't get into yet again. Wuthering Heights, How the West Was Won, all these scores. But interestingly, in the most recent Golden Globes, his son... Thomas Newman was nominated for Best Score for 1917, and Thomas's cousin Randy Newman was nominated for Marriage Story. The Newmans know their music. So if you do watch Fall of Fire, keep an eye out for that score and be aware of the Newman family stranglehold in the composer world. I had no idea they were all related. No, I found out that Randy and Thomas were because I was looking them up when we were checking the credits on the Globes, the lower thirds where we put the titles on, and I was like, are we getting one of these last names wrong? How did these guys have the same last name? Discover they were cousins, and then that led me back into figuring out, oh, this is a whole family. It's like the makeup family. Hollywood loves a family dynasty. That they do. Great transition. I did not plan this either, but my next movie, my number two, is also from 1938. I promise I watched movies from another year. I swear. I'm doing one of the last classic films that I watched in 2019, Four's a Crowd. 
Laurie, what's the matter? The roof of this house is going up and down like a lid. is a very very interesting movie even more so if you are like me and you know way too much about its lead this is a movie that is a screwball comedy but it was also known as one of the follow-up films that olivia de Havilland and errol flynn had made i think post robin hood i think they came out relatively close together the rumor was is that they felt this movie did not have the same success and the same largesse as the other movies was because spoiler alert they did not end up together in this movie so four is a crowd is the story of a man played by errol flynn who is a 1938 version of a social media manager he makes wealthy guys who have terrible reputations they spend money so that they can clean up those reputations so they give him money and then he gives that money to charities that he likes and stuff he wants to support. And at the same time, they look like great philanthropists because they're doing this. He gets involved in this series of events led by a reporter played by Rosalind Russell. She's gonna get fired and he, she wants him to save the newspaper. And he gets involved in this issue with the head of the newspaper played by Patrick Knowles, who is dating the heiress who is also the granddaughter of the man that Errol Flynn's character has been wanting to get his hooks into, played by Mrs. Olivia de Havilland. 1930s screwball plot, everything is interrelated. I had a lot of fun with this movie. Comedic timing is really, really great. I did not know that Patrick Knowles and Olivia de Havilland had a string of films. He was the perpetual lovable loser. In this case, he is the consolation prize. You're supposed to believe that him and Olivia de Havilland are meant to be together. I don't buy it at all. It's just an added layer of humor watching Errol Flynn in this film because he is a guy juggling two women. And it is hilarious watching him have two phones in his hands and he's trying to lean his head one way to talk to one woman and lean his head the other way to talk to another woman and pretend he's having this conversation. I just love watching Errol Flynn squirm over female troubles. Forza Crowd is hilarious. Go watch it. Has anybody else seen Forza Crowd? It's actually on my watch list. I definitely have to see it. I'm a huge, huge Errol Flynn fan. I know the flack I'm going to get for that. But that's one of the few movies I haven't seen, actually. Hearing that he and Olivia don't end up together is actually shocking, considering how huge they were as a couple by that point. So I'm amazed, but I'm more eager to see it to see how it stands out. I have not seen it, but that's because I've not made a point of looking for Errol movies due to the aforementioned real life difficulties of him. And there are so many other movies to seek out. Well, Sam, what's your number two? I'm following my last depressing Joan Blondell movie with another depressing Joan Blondell movie. And I'm probably not overstating it when I say that it's likely the most depressing movie I've ever seen in my life. As far as heartfelt family dramas go, this one 
pretty near takes the cake as far as classic movies go. It's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn from 1947. Ah, listen. You're going to wish me happiness, ain't you? Naturally, I'm going to wish you happiness. This time, too. Oh, golly, why can't you skip to the part where you forgive me? You're going to before you're through. You know I'll get around you in the end. Why can't you just be human now and get it over with? Huh? Oh, there ain't no one like you to get around a person in the whole world, unless it's Johnny. You're in time for pie. Go on now and sit down. Oh, that's more like it. That's my kid sister talking. I have seen and heard some really emotional responses to this film. And I always pass them off. I was like, no, it can't be that sad. It's that sad. I was literally crying the entire time. Everyone jokes, oh, I have to get tissues. There were so many tears, it was becoming a problem. I had to get tissues. (laughs) Peggy Ann Garner, she's just fantastic. And she and Ted Donaldson, who is a big TCM Film Festival family member, They're both so powerful and really convincing for child actors of the time. Really, the whole cast together just makes this fantastic, especially James Dunn as the dad, Dorothy McGuire as the mom, and also Lloyd Nolan, who I usually don't care for, and definitely Joan Blondell, who gives it a little bit of a comic relief in parts. It was so relatable and so realistic. I can't imagine what this movie would have been like for people who, huge spoiler alert here, people who have lost their dad, but it made me miss mine. And it reminded me more of real family dynamics than a lot of classic movies I've seen. This was one people really, really urged me to see and I didn't listen. And finally I did and I don't regret it at all. If you are looking forward to being sad for two hours, watch this movie. Just do it once for me. I'm excited that I haven't seen that only because it's fun to think we're all discovering films separate from each other. And there is something really important in the idea of what we get from watching movies in terms of unlocking specific emotions, not all of them good ones. And I really like that that one set that off in you because it can be really cathartic to just watch something knowing it's going to be sad and make you feel in touch with those emotions. A lot of other people in our area of profession would relate to this as well because it's about a little girl who just wants to go to school and write as well. So on that end, there's a huge emotional response too because I felt like I was her at one point. I totally get it. My dad really reminded me of this dad in particular. I actually wrote this in a letter to Gina Rollins because her character in A Woman Under the Influence really reminded me of my mom. It's when you find characters in a movie that remind you of people that you know that make that light bulb go off, wow, this is a really well-written movie. That's a huge clue for me that something is well written when it reminds me of a real person when it's that fleshed out my dad's not a musician I'll just say that but a lot of the way that he was in the movie and a lot of his character traits reminded me a lot of my dad more than any other movie I've seen so far I have not seen that it's again one of numerous films on my list as far as dramas go like I said if you guys are ready to cry you should both see it 
Drea, what is your number two? My number two has zero tears involved. So if you want to mix up on the other side of things, it's a mad, 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 mad world, you guys. There was a certain amount of money buried down in this park. Now, I suggest that we quietly get into our cars, and then when we get down there, we dig up the money, providing that there is some money there. There's only one way to figure it, and that is every man for himself. And so begins the maddest, wildest, zaniest chase ever filmed as our merrymakers race across country by land, by sea, by air. It's in 1963 film, so decades past where Kristen would be interested in it. Ha 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 ha. Lil Burn. Lil Burn, because you love 1938. It's your favorite <laughs> year. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World is the nuttiest film. It has a thousand people in it. Every single person in the cast made me excited. It's led by Spencer Tracy, but you're literally looking and you're like, Milton Burl, Sid Caesar. Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Jonathan Winters, what's happening? Every person in it. I can't imagine casting something like this, but I won't lie when I say that it weirdly reminded me of the energy and frenetic ridiculousness of the Fast and Furious movies. And I hope some scholar someday writes an academic treatise about that that's completely ignored by the rest of the world. But if you're not familiar with it, it is about this criminal who gets in a car accident and has revealed that he's just stolen all of this money. He's gotten out of jail. He's fleeing the police. He's stolen all this money, gets in a car accident. He's laying there dying. And there are five different people who have stopped to help him. So he confesses to all of them where he's hidden this money. They're like, oh yeah, okay, good. We're going to go in this together. And of course they do not. They separate very quickly and it becomes this bonkers race across the country to get to this place where this money is hidden. And so you go with each of these different teams, eventual teams of people, as they charter an airplane or get a car. And they're racing to get there and have all of these interpersonal arguments and snickerings along the way. It's mayhem on so many fronts. And the fact that it's directed by Stanley Kramer blew my mind the whole time. Because obviously, like many people, I know him from Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg, which are a little different from this film. Not to give anything away, the Defiant Ones and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World don't have a lot in common. But they do have a very capable director at the helm, which helps a lot because there's so much going on here. If you didn't have someone with a clear sense of voice, with an authorial presence, it would be really lost. But instead, it's really fun, it cooks along, and you're rooting for these people. And it also has the perfect ending for this kind of greed-based shenanigans. It's just very fitting. It makes me very happy. Oh, and then there's a second button ending that involves a straight-up pratfall on a banana peel which is just the film being like, yes, we know exactly what we're doing. We are this film. I don't know if you guys have seen this. I'm thinking a lot more people have seen this than some of the others. I have seen this, actually. I saw this a long time ago for another podcast that I did, and I remember it being very long, so I should probably rewatch it. I remember the ending, and I remember that 
in and out Burger created their thing off of this movie because the X with the palm trees that everybody's looking for is what in and out Burger does. Fun fact, if you didn't know that. Oh, that blows my mind. It's the W. They're looking for a W. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's the same thing, whatever. I haven't seen this one. It's definitely on my list. I have seen the Jerry Lewis cameo so many times, though. That's the one part I feel like I've seen over and over again everywhere. Yeah, that's one of the famous bits, because a lot of the elements of it, like, as I've said, they're so interwoven. If you don't know who the people are to each other, they're not as easily, like, boop, boop. Here's this moment. And Kristen, I'm guessing you saw in like 2014, they did a re-release where they had put together something that was closer to the director's cut, which is really long. I think it's like two and a half, some hours long. The released version was much shorter. My number one is not from 1938. Haha, it's 20 years later. It's from 1958. Eights were in in 2019 for some reason. Let's do some story time. I don't like Paul Newman. I have never liked Paul Newman. I don't get Paul Newman. My friends told me that because I said that, that I needed to watch one movie. And if I could say that I still wasn't into Paul Newman after that, then they would leave me alone. And so they told me to watch The Long Hot Summer. And I did. And that is why it's my number one of the year. No one could tell the naked truth about these people better than Faulkner, in his own language, in his own frankness. With America's most popular new star, Paul Newman, as Ben Quick, he could sure stir up a town and its women. Joanne Woodward, nominated for an Academy Award as Best Actress of the Year for her performance in Three Faces of Eve. Anthony Franciosa as Jody, the terrible things he did to prove himself a man. Long Hot Sour is one of those 1950s wealthy people have horrible issues movies rotting from the inside type of thing. You have the story of the Varners led by who else would you have leading a wealthy white legacy family but Orson Welles. It just makes sense, right? Obviously. <laughs> he has a son played by Anthony Franciosa who is married to a woman played by Lee Remick, and they are doing nothing for this entire movie but either having sex or talking about why they're not having sex. He also has a daughter who is very bookish, very prim, very proper, played by Joanne Woodward. And one day, this smooth-talking, good-looking con man named Ben Quick comes into town, played by Paul Newman. Orson Welles' character takes a shine to him and says, you know what? You're the son I should have, not this strip over here who is worried about his wife being way too hot for him. You know what you should do is you should try to get my prudish daughter to get into you and then marry her and then we can all live happily ever after. And so that is the plot of the movie is Paul Newman's character trying to get Joanne Woodward super thirsty over him. And I mean, I'm not opposed to what he tries in this movie. Everybody's seen the Paul Newman gif that comes from this movie. I was definitely feeling some feelings that I did not want to feel. I still don't think I want to feel them. The Paul Newman thing was good. I get it now, okay? Outside of that, I'm a fan of those type of movies where it is about the facade coming down and how 
wealthy people act on the outside versus how they act on the inside. And the cast for this movie is just freaking stacked. Orson Welles, you have Lee Remick, you have Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman, you have Angela Lansbury. I was a little upset for Angie Lansbury, considering that she has to date Orson Welles. And I was like, no, Angie's way too good for him. But, you know, it was 1958, so whatever. If you just like torrid, thirsty, sweat-inducing movies, I wish that I had had some way to include this in our thirsty noirs, even though it's not a noir. But it is all about sex in every frame. Who's having it? Who isn't? Who's sweaty? Who's not sweaty? Why are you not sweaty? It is sheer brilliance and I was into it I feel very weird saying that I was into a lot of weird things I didn't think I'd be into last year there you go that's my number one long hot summer go watch it better yet by the twilight time I did that is a good choice and it is insane to me for a woman who loves to be enamored by attractive Hollywood men alive or dead that you would put up such a fight against Paul Newman that energy could be spent elsewhere, Kristen. Right now, that energy is spent elsewhere, telling myself <laughs> that I cannot like another ridiculously good-looking mega superstar that everybody else is into that I, up until a month ago, was just like, eh. Stranger things have happened. Sam, have you seen The Long Hot Summer? This is so funny because... As Drea mentioned, we all have such different discoveries of classic film. This was one of the first for me. <laughs> I've been new about The Long Hot Summer and Paul Newman. I can't get over that movie, the shirtless scenes. I am one of those people in the boat that says Orson Welles was a bad actor, so he ruins this movie to an extent. But it has been a while since I've seen this. I'm tempted to get that DVD and... Enjoy this again. He and Joanne Woodward, their chemistry in this is so, so good. I'm usually not even attracted to Southern accents. Paul Newman convinces me that it can be sexy. And two, they got married while shooting this movie, and you totally understand why. (laughs) Never did I think I would end 2019 saying, yeah, Paul Newman could get it. For me, I never thought I'd say that. It's funny because my family, I'm talking three generations, my grandparents, my parents, and my sister and I have had a decades-long feud about which one is hotter, Paul Newman or Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Paul Newman. I'm on the Paul Newman train. Thank you, Drea. Lies! Oh my god! <laughs> we started off 2020 and I did not know this! <laughs> like I said, three generations of my family, and we are totally split. The Paul Newman train consists of my grandmother, my mom, and me, and the Robert Redford train is my grandfather, my father, and my sister. Smart men and a smart woman that is not Sam Ellis. I do not understand that. It's just so funny because whenever we want to start a fight, I just bring it up. (sighs) It makes family reunions very interesting. This episode is sponsored by Paul Newman and all the other men that I just don't get and I don't want to get. Sam, what's your number one? You need to see The Long Hot Summer again, Kristen. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I might might actually do that. My number one is a bit of a curveball. I'm actually putting this at the top because as I looked through my letterbox, I realized 
My only new discovery of 2019, I gave a full five stars, was A Free Soul from 1931. I made a bargain with my father, Ace. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Well, what was the bargain? That if he'd stopped drinking, I'd never see you again. It wasn't easy, but there wasn't anything else to do. I had to try. So you thought you'd take three months in the woods? Try to forget about me. I figured that. Figured what? The night of the radio when I told him I wanted to marry you. You did what? Now cut that. Cut it now and leave it lay. It's been a while since I've seen it. I already need to rewatch it and see if I should adjust that. It includes so many things that I love about classic movies. It really proves to me why the 30s are my favorite decade in film. Norma Shearer in particular isn't everyone's cup of tea, but she's definitely mine. I've always loved her pretty much since discovering classic movies ever since I first saw her in Marie Antoinette and at the same time discovered Tyrone Power. Her style of acting I just find so captivating. No matter what she's doing on screen, she's pulling me in. And her performance as Jan is so ahead of its time. Her character is torn between two men, Clark Gable and Leslie Howard. And it basically shows her choosing the wrong person. She chooses gangster Clark Gable, who I just want to preface this by saying this isn't the Clark Gable of Gone with the Wind just yet. He's still getting up there in billing. I don't think he's top billed by any stretch of the imagination in this movie. But she chooses him and it basically shows them having premarital sex followed by a very toxic relationship. Many movies made in this era showed toxic relationships, but the audience is usually expected to root for the couple despite their toxicity. And this movie stands out because... It shows Norma's abuse and you sympathize with her and you want her to get away from Clark Gable, even though they already had sex. So for a pre-code, that's pretty ahead of its time. Then Leslie Howard also turns in a really great performance as the other man. He's more of the goody two-shoes as always. He makes some very rash decisions for her even though you might not root for Vivian Lee to get with him and Gone with the Wind, like I definitely don't, you definitely understand why she wants to better herself and wants to get closer to Leslie Howard by the end of the film. I still think it's a travesty that John Barrymore was never nominated for an Oscar and was the only Barrymore sibling to not win. But Lionel Barrymore won an Oscar for his performance as the dad in this movie. I understand why. I'm not going to argue with this one. He gives a very compelling speech as the lawyer in the courtroom at the end, and it's just very convincing. He's a bit of a ham like all the Barrymores, but you definitely appreciate it and you love it. And let me say, Norma's fashion. She has amazing fashion in all of her films, But this one in particular, she has a satin robe dress that she wears. It's a little bit off the shoulder, very racy. It's one of those movies, I was just watching it, and it's in black and white, of course. And I'm watching it, I'm like, what color was that? 
before the movie was over, I had saved a picture of her in that dress as my phone wallpaper because I loved it so much. And I found out that it was Peach, which I love. So that's even better. Just a really, really interesting film. Such a fantastic product of its time. It's just so interesting. Preco Clark Gable is the only Clark Gable I accept because it was when he just didn't care and he was evil and delightful. The thing is, is I'm not a huge Clark Gable person. He also reminds me of my dad's jump on him (laughs) as like a sexy leading man. So that's why I'm cool with him playing a villain. I'm open-minded to that. And he didn't disappoint in that sense. I've seen the movie and I enjoy it up until the Barrymore speech. It's doing so well. Why do we need this? moment for him to win an Oscar. But I will say if you are like me and you have an HD TV, watching something like that is even more brilliant because it is obvious that Norma is not wearing a bra for half of the movie. So you're just like, yeah, those are definitely 1930s lady nips in the frame. That's pre-code for you. Even for a pre-code, having sex with somebody else and then deciding you don't want to be with him is okay. I'm for that. It's an interesting lesson for the time. Definitely not one that would have been taught three years later after the code was enforced. Drea, what's your number one? My number one is in 1958, so separate from this pre-code conversation. However, it perfectly dovetails from the idea of memorable fashion because there are so many great outfits in this. The film is 1958's Auntie Mame starring Russell and Russell. I'm your Auntie Mame! Yes, it's the wacky and warm, wild and wonderful Auntie Mame whose story shattered all bestseller records and then ran riot on stages all over the land. Auntie Maine, the name that has become a household word. And brother, what a household. No, 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 no! You do have a bus! Oh, I haven't seen it. I'm thrilled you said that because I was like, these two are going to giggle at me that I'm just seeing it now. But I did just see it now. And I realized all three of my picks are frenetic high energy, which is maybe something that as I was thinking of happy discoveries, it's a, an energy I like to bring with me. Auntie Mame, it's right there in the title. There is a young boy orphaned in the very beginning. His father, who passes away, is the brother of Mame, played by Rosalind Russell, who then becomes his guardian. And she is, in a word, fabulous. She has my dream apartment and my dream wardrobe. Please Google it. After you Google images for Sam's Please also follow up with these. She has a full lace bodysuit under a kimono thing. She has an entire silver sequined jumpsuit of sorts. Her stuff is it's amazing. And it's also a perfect representation of her as a character, that she's free-spirited and a little eccentric and out there. She is surrounded with actors and actresses and writers and artists Some classic films, especially ones like this that are adapted from plays, they don't follow the same structural language that cinema develops over time. 
you have your acts or you have your like, oh, this is following this character. This movie hops around in unusual ways. It takes turns. She gets engaged and you don't see it coming. There's just a lot of time spent in places that you didn't see. But I found it enjoyable because I found MAME enjoyable. Your take on this film will have a lot to do with that. It's such a great character piece for an actor like Rosalind Russell, who we've seen in so many things being incredible, but she gets to be exclamation point everything in this. She plays the equivalent of 10 different characters because she changes around the different people that she's around. But she's so free-spirited and happy. How that ends up playing out in the shape of Patrick's life, and this goes for the many years of this boy's life until he's a man trying to get married himself. There's a lot of story packed in. There's as much story as there is costumes, which is often what I want in a film. This is so many actors I'm not a fan of that I'm revealing in this. I'm not a huge Rosalind Russell gal. I definitely see why she was chosen to play this part just from what I've seen, the little bits and pieces, trailers, basically. I totally get it. I'm definitely going to see it at some point. It's another one, like you said, Drea, that's it's sort of a must. If I don't see it at some point, people are just going to keep mentioning it, just like you are, how great it is. Yeah, I definitely have to see it. If you go in knowing that it's very broad and it has that feel that a lot of things adapted from the stage do, if you know that going in, it helps. People who aim for movies like this thinking of a more standardized feel to them, that's how you can set up expectations to let yourself. But this is one, if you just sort of immerse in it, you're going to be good. That brings us to honorable mentions. Did we have any? I will throw out a couple other films that did not make the list. 1939's Made for Each Other, Jimmy Stewart and Carol Lombard play a couple that goes through the pitfalls of life and having a child and it's at times filmed like a noir i finally saw nine to five in 2019 and god is that movie timely it's definitely worth watching only for you to be angry about how things have not changed 1935's mad love with peter Lorre. this is my big tcm pick for this year and it is all sorts of kooky 1979's my brilliant career We're talking about swoony men that I did not anticipate in 2019. Sam Neill. And Judy Davis. I love that movie. And Judy Davis. Sam Neill. Having a pillow fight with a woman in a field is one of the hottest things I think I've seen this year. 1943's Old Acquaintance. Miriam and Betty duking it out. This is the one where Miriam Hopkins gets choked out. It's a lot of fun. And 1944's Between Two Worlds. Yes, the John Garfield movie did not make it this year on my list, but Between Two Worlds is a really unique film about a group of people that have died that are on a ship bound for, we don't know. I always am a little weirded out that John Garfield tended to play characters that either knew they were going to die young or were already sickened from the go or in this case are already dead. But he is just so pretty, so pretty. He's a jerk. But he's a jerk seeking redemption because he doesn't want to go to hell. But I mean, he might have been running hell. I mean, he was pretty saucy. So those are my honorable mentions. Sam, what almost made your list? Okay, so I came in with a top 10. So I'm going to have to move quickly. 
Sweet Charity was so close to making my top three. I have so much to say about it, and I almost wish that I had included it. From 1969, so great. I've always loved Shirley MacLaine. Discovering another musical is rare for me because I've seen so many now, but it was so good. So many great, almost cameo performances from a lot of my favorite stars. Sammy Davis Jr., And Ricardo Montalban, especially the whole Ricardo Montalban part where she's in his apartment hiding in his closet is just the best part of the film. It's so funny, so timed perfectly. It's just really, really great. A lot of people say that this is just too weird to be good. I disagree. I was so surprised by how much I loved it. Also, I met him in Paris, which was a TCM premiere this year as part of Melvin Douglas Day on Summer Under the Stars. I was so blown away. I haven't really liked Claudette Colbert too much, despite the fact that she is the only old movie star, really, that shares my birthday. But I've been trying to fix that because we're kindred spirits in a way. I met him in Paris from 1937, really helped with that. It helped me get over my meh for Claudette Colbert. She and Melvin Douglas are so great in this movie. It's another one of those movies that shows why the 30s is my favorite decade. The fashion, the romantic comedy, the little bit of slapstick, everything combined just made that movie absolutely wonderful. Perfect new discovery for 2019. Probably the most important film in the grand scope of cinema that I discovered this year was Lawrence of Arabia. I saw it on the big screen. Way better than I ever could have thought it would be. I discussed in a former episode how I was afraid to watch it because I was afraid it would be desert and more desert. It blew my expectations out of the water. Really loved it. I did my Discovering Tyrone Power series this year on my blog, trying to find new-to-me Tyrone Power movies. My favorite didn't really have him in it. He's just uh, an extra, basically. But Girls Dormitory, very scandalous. A lot of people aren't going to agree with me on this one if you've seen it. I loved it. It was really fascinating. I would not expect a teacher and a student to actually get together in a movie. And then finally, my top three TCM film festival picks, Mad Love, of course, to touch on Kristen's point, I was there too. It was just really cool, really great Peter Lorre discovery. When Worlds Collide, I saw that with another of my favorite bloggers, Virginie. She is so cool. I love seeing that movie for the first time with her, with Barbara Rush in attendance. As far as 50 sci-fi goes, it was another one. I was just so surprised at how much I loved it. And lastly, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, one of the most poignant silent films. And I love Janet Gaynor. So seeing that was really cool. And my sister loved that one too. So that's about all I have. Drea, what about you? What almost made your list? I just have a couple. One is The Secret Garden from 1949. Oh, I love that movie. Oh my goodness. It's one of my favorite books. Is it Frances Hodgson Burnett? believe so yeah i didn't realize so i thought that margaret o'brien the little sister from meet me in st louis plays the main girl mary lennox and it's just a great story oh another orphan story who knew that was a weird and terrible through line of some of mine this orphan who's sent to england to live with distant family and she's a jerk and her cousin 
who's played by Dean Stockwell, which also blew my mind. And Elsa Lancaster is in it as well. She works in the house. I was like, oh, I know that face. And I know that face. It was very exciting. And it's just a really sweet and beautiful story. It also incorporates black and white versus technicolor in a way that obviously is most famously used in Wizard of Oz. It fits the story so well of how these kids heal themselves by virtue of working with their hands and in the soil, in the secret garden, and in becoming better humans towards each other. It's just lovely. And then the other two are on my Samantha Will Never Watch list because they're from the 70s. (laughs) One is The Last Picture Show, which is obviously the Peter Bogdanovich film that introduced Sybil Shepherd to the world. And she's just luminous in it. But more importantly, a young Jeff Bridges is Dreamboat McDreamboat. And it's this really fascinating view at looking at this small town in Texas that's off the map, shrinking and growing smaller as the teenagers whose lives you're watching are trying to get bigger. And it's just a really nuanced ensemble piece. And then the last one was back and forth on if it would make this because I had such differing views on it. But at the end of the day, it's a yes for me. And that is The Long Goodbye from 1973, which is obviously a film by, obviously, by Robert Altman. And what's drew me to it and what I think makes it most difficult is it's it's a Philip Marlowe film. Elliot Gould plays Marlowe in this. He plays him unlike any of the other people that we've seen play him because it's this very 70s Altman meandering crime story for all of us that have Philip Marlowe in our heads from a much earlier time, it's a really interesting juxtaposition to see it placed in the 70s, which at the time was the contemporary setting, and we are now however many decades removed. It's a, a nice view for cinemaphiles with that angle to it. And we did have a couple listener mentions that came through, so thank you to everybody that answered. At Reb6126, said best years of our lives good news from 1947 the general from 1926 and harvey from 1950 i've seen two of those i feel accomplished the next one comes from at waves of gray they said 1933's design for living 1938's holiday 1942's random harvest the same 1944 john garfield movie i did between two worlds and 1946's nocturne and a few dozen others Our good friend Peter Bryant at PM Bryant said some of my favorite discoveries this year, 1947's Deep Valley with Ida Lupino and Dane Clark, 1951's The Tall Target with Dick Powell, 1943's Cry Havoc, ensemble drama with great cast, including Margaret Sullivan and Anne Southern. Double shout out for Cry Havoc. It's so good. And 1937's Snowed Under, which is an ensemble comedy. Anna Rowland at Donna Lamore said, Best classic films I discovered in 2019? 1932's Merrily We Go to Hell. My film, 1938's The Mad Miss Manton. So I'm just loving that a lot of people saw stuff we also saw. That's cool. 1932's Big City Blues. 1948's Letter to Three Wives. 1933's Employee's Entrance. 1933's Blood Money. 1932's Night World, 1931's Night Nurse, and 1932's Men of Chance. Anna saw a lot of pre-code. I couldn't agree more. Pre-code is the best. I also loved She Married Her Boss from 1932 this year. I think I saw it this year. It was great. 
one of those movies that I don't know if we'd remake it today. <laughs> Absolutely not. But it was wonderful. You can listen to Ticklish Business a variety of different ways directly at ticklishbusiness.poppy.com. Stitcher Radio, Player FM, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are listening to us via Apple Podcasts, iTunes may be gone, but Apple Podcasts lives and you can leave us a review and a rating there. They help us. You can contact us directly at ticklishbiz, that's B-I-Z at gmail.com. And you can visit me at either Twitter at journeys underscore film or my classic film website, journeysinclassicfilm.com. The podcast is also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you online? I am on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. You can follow my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can follow my Cooking with the Stars posts on classicmoviehub.com. This month I'm talking about Loretta Young. I'm glad I'm touching on her finally. It's great. And what about you, Drea Clark? Where are you online? I'm Twitter at the Drea Clark. Nice and easy. And if you want to help support the podcast, you can head over to Patreon, where we have a wealth of amazing perks. All your donations go straight back into the show. If you become a patron right now, you can get access to exclusive pins. And if you are our lumbar level, then you actually get free DVDs. The first Christmas presents for our lumbar level fans went out this week, as well as a bunch of the contest prizes that we did, our ticklish treats over Christmas which is actually really successful. I'm happy that I was able to give away so many great prizes. In 2020, we are planning all sorts of new bonus stuff for Patreon. We have our regular bonus shows based on a true podcast of Double Features, which are coming back with William Bibiani and Adam Kautzer, respectively. And we also have a couple new shows that have been outlined on Patreon. A couple I can announce here, one of them being Hitchcast, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Me and Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, who did couple episodes on Hitchcock with me a couple years ago. We're going to be looking at every Alfred Hitchcock movie, seeing how he's transformed as a, a filmmaker then and now and the themes he's bringing up. So that'll be really fun. There's a bunch of other bonus shows in the pipeline, but I'm not ready to announce those to everybody yet since we're still trying to nail some stuff down. But suffice it to say, there's a lot of stuff that I am probably stretching myself way too thin on. I want to give you guys a great classic film podcast to listen to so that's gonna close us out do we know what we are talking about next week because i actually do not have the schedule it will be a surprise it will be a surprise we will have something for you next week till then